We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. We are so excited. In fact, we love doing this podcast, don't we? Yes, we do. In fact, we get a little anxious when we miss a week or we can't get together. Oh, yeah, we have to catch up. Yeah, yes, totally. Because we love bringing these incredible women to you. Mm-hmm. We hope that they're inspiring you. We hope that they're blessing you. And again, I have personally gotten three requests. Uh, for women to talk about in future programs. And I want you to know the research has begun. Ooh, interesting. So I'm I'm really excited. Okay, good. (laughs) So, you know, of course, one of them is uh, Rosalind Goforth. I think I've had so many Everybody wants her, yeah. Yes, and I was already planning on her, and she will be in the future. But (laughs) I got some other um, women that just sound fascinating that women have sent me in. So thank you, thank you, thank you for suggesting these women Mm -hmm. and uh, sending them in. We love... We love, 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 love um, hearing from you in yes. any way possible. Absolutely. Jasmine, tell them some of the ways they can write us. Well, Cheryl, <laughs> we're going to sh- tell you now at the beginning instead of at the end. Mix it up a little. Uh, you can contact us. Our email address is wwk at cccm.com. Very easy, right? Stands for Women Worth Knowing. And then you can also contact us through the women.cccm.com website, through Cheryl's website, graciouswords.com. So we've got a couple different ways. There's no excuse. You can contact us. <laughs> and we, as I said, we would love to hear from you. It's incredible the contacts that I've made through this program mm-hmm. that have um, just led to some great friendships yeah. and just some great information. Totally. But Jasmine, we're still in yes. the Yeah, Reformation period, right? We're doing a little bit more Reformation stuff. And I know you're going to talk about some gals as well. So this is kind of fun. My gals are going to be in the 1600s. What can I say? Well, a little bit later. Yes, yes. Still technically the Reformation era. (laughs) Yes, we're we're still going forward. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, we we talked about Katie Luther. We did a a little two-parter on her. Mm -hmm. I loved her, right? And so she's considered, you know, the first lady of the Reformation because obviously she was the wife of Martin Luther. That's right. There Uh, you go. But, yeah, how about that? But I, I thought, well, before we move on, I want to like talk about at least a couple other of the Reformation wives, because there were quite a few of them. And, you know, I think most Christians know the big Reformation names like Luther or John Calvin, maybe Ulrich Zwingli or John Knox or some of the big guns. But, you know, there's a lot of reformers that nobody ever talks about or knows about. I think sometimes we almost think that those were the only ones. <laughs> but there were guys like Wolfgang Capito, William Farrell, Theodore Beza, Philip Melanchthon. Some people might know about him. He was Luther's best friend. Uh, Martin Bucer, who's my favorite reformer, actually, um, somebody that's a little more obscure, but there were so many of them. And so likewise, there are many Reformation wives that nobody has heard of either. And I'm pretty sure all of these gals, they had to be women of strength, women of character to walk through life, supporting their husbands and navigating just this really cataclysmic time period that was the Reformation. The Reformation was intense. It was just an insane time. A lot of social upheaval and chaos. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, Even wars, because, you know, there was the whole church-state union, and so everything that was related to religion also was political. And so you have the Catholics getting upset and coming in, and there's, you know, fights and wars. It was really chaotic. So these women 
had to be just real stalwarts and really strong in their faith and their convictions to hang, to hang in there during this time. Um, But as much as I would like to talk about all of them, I'm only going to be able to highlight a few because we don't have substantial information on most of them. You'll get like letters from the reformers between each other, which is fun to read. And they'll say like, hey, say hi to your wife, Mary, or your wife, Kate, Catherine for me or whatever. But you don't get a lot of information. There's only a few that we have substantial info on. So I do want to just give a quick shout out to the ones we won't get to talk about a lot. Uh, Catherine Melanchthon. That was, like I said, um, the wife of Luther's best friend, Philip. And all we know about her was that she had a great sense of humor. And apparently she was um, a great cook because Philip said she always thinks I'm dying of hunger unless I'm stuffed like a sausage. So, and so that that's, that's was in a letter. That's pretty much it was in a letter. That's what it we was know in about a letter. <laughs> well, you know what? There's nothing like an honorable mention by your husband in a letter. Yeah. You know, sometimes that's when you find out whether he liked dinner or not. There you go. <laughs> this is what he really thinks. Yes. <laughs> um, and then Anna Zwingli, the wife of Ulrich Zwingli, she actually was the first Reformation wife. She got married um, to Ulrich before Katie and Martin Luther did, which is kind of interesting. Now, was she so, one that Luther married off? No, went, no, that's a great question. No, because they were over um, they were over in Switzerland. So, so the reason I <laughs> ask that is if you listen to our podcast on Katie Luther, you would uh, realize that um, <laughs> John Luther was finding husbands for all of these young women that he'd saved from this convent. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and Katie Luther was the one that wasn't taken. And yeah. so kind of by default. Conveniently. There. And then yeah, later exactly. by love. <laughs> by default. Right. So. Um, <laughs> That's why I asked about. No, that's a good question. Actually, <laughs> yes. you never know. Right, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So they. So she was married to uh, Ulrich Zwingli, who was kind of the spearhead of the Swiss Reformation uh, in Zurich, and she was actually called the weeping mother of the Reformation because. Pretty early on, Ulrich was probably in his 40s, and um, there was a battle. The Catholics came and stormed the city of Zurich, and he went out as the chaplain to this battle, and he and his son uh, ended up dying. And so it was just this devastating loss. There's like a whole story about it, which is, you know, very touching. Anyways, so she uh, and her, you know, seven children, you know, she's just widowed there with seven kids, so she was called the weeping mother of the now, Reformation. Now, let's just stop for a second, because I think it's important, because when you think of the Reformation movement, you tend to think only of Germany. Yeah. But you realize yeah. it grew. It, it took off rather quickly because there were a lot of people who had a hunger for God, mm-hmm. a lot of men, a lot of women, and realized as they began to read the because Word the of God. Because the printing press. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. They began to read the Bible that the Catholic Church was not under the authority of the Word of God. Exactly. So they could not go under the authority of the Catholic Church when the Catholic Church was not under the authority of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. In fact, at one of the meetings where um, Luther was being tried by or questioned by the Catholic tribunal, he said something to the effect, if you will just come under the authority of the Word, I'll come under your authority. It's yes. just that simple. It, yeah. And so these men did not start out to have a war Mm-mm. They just wanted the church leaders in the Catholic Church to come under the authority of the Word of God. Very good, yeah. And so yeah. Um, tell us just before we go forward, because mm. you're talking about Reformation wives in Switzerland, mm. and mm-hmm. I know there was a movement in France. Yeah, so, we'll get to those gals later. <laughs> right. So let's let's talk a little bit about kind of where it really grew, where John Calvin came out of. 
like what Cheryl was saying, it didn't just happen in Germany, even though it started there with Luther. Um, the printing press had been invented, you know, about the 50 Gutenberg. years beforehand, yes. the Gutenberg. And so uh, that really was what made everything that Luther said and wrote about go viral. You know, the 95 theses, when he posted those, <laughs> go you know, viral. Well, I have to bring it to our modern context here. And that's without here. computers. <laughs> I know. How about that, folks? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, Luther didn't even know that anyone was going to print the 95 theses. Somebody did it without his knowledge. And mm. they shipped it out all over Germany. And then it spreads out beyond there. Calvin got an, actually a hold of some of Luther's writings. You know who John else Knox, did? All these different people. Henry VIII right. and Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Anne Boleyn. Oh, yeah. We can talk about her, oh, too. Yes. I mean, there were just it, it just circulated and spread everywhere. And like Cheryl said, Europe was ripe for this because people were starting to get really disgruntled. They could see something was wrong in the church. You know, they were longing for that that reform. And so it was just time. It was like a tinderbox. Uh, it just went all over the place. And so, yeah, like you said, we have Zwingli going on over in Switzerland, in Zurich. Oh, Marjorie Knox was another wife I wanted to just mention briefly. That was the wife of um, John Knox, who was up in Scotland. So again, the Reformation went everywhere. And she was very young when they got married. Um, and they had a, one of those turbulent Reformation marriages. Um, and then this other gal. Do you think that yeah. some of these marriages are turbulent? Because for the first time, the Reformationists, more than the Catholic Church at that time, gave women freedom. Well, gave yes, women yeah, liberty yes, because they were under that. the yes. authority of the word of God. Yeah, it changed a lot. Every level of society was affected. And I wish we had time to really go launch way into that because it's really amazing what the Reformation did. But it did. will keep coming up it in will. the next, what, 10 episodes Yeah, however probably. many we do yes. on this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the only other one I wanted to mention is just because I think it's kind of funny. There was a Reformation wife named Willa Brandis Rosenblatt, and she married four reformers in succession. Oh, my goodness. So I know, right? Step aside, Elizabeth Elliot. This gal had four husbands. <laughs> They just kept dying off, maybe in war. I can't remember exactly how they all died, but it was but pretty being, funny. Being a Reformationist in that time was a dangerous so occupation. Dangerous. Exactly. And, you know, we should say a little bit, too. When the Reformationists started, Luther didn't intend for it to ever come to war. And then when nope. some men started taking up arms, uh, Luther was really distressed by yeah, that. He freaked out. He wasn't war. Right. Yeah. And he didn't want that. But after he died, then it began to um, solidify into two sides mm -hmm. and wars began before there was persecution and even yeah. armies would come in. But now the Reformationists begin to raise up their own armies. Yeah. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that started to happen. And that's a lot of the problem with the church-state union thing. That's going to actually come up today and then in our episode next week. You see, because they couldn't get out of their heads this idea that church and state were united, you end up with a lot of political and religious you know, wars and intrigues and stuff united. It was unfortunate. So, so that's a great background. But yes, there's, yes, that's, a, <laughs> and like I said, that'll keep coming up so as we'll see. three women this whose is relevant, names folks. you don't remember. <laughs> And three women in all that history. There we go. And now we're yes. going to launch into uh, Idolette de Bure Calvin. So this is the one that we do actually have some information on. Okay, wait. So that we have to say too, John Calvin was a staunch bachelor. Yes, we're going to. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. We'll get to, his story's hilarious. So. Oh, yay. <laughs> so Idolette, yes, she was the wife of the great French reformer, John Calvin. Um, he was French, but he actually ended up settling and reforming uh, Geneva, Switzerland, as we're going to see. So we actually have to start with him to get to her. Yes. So um, as some know, Calvin was famous for just that, for turning the city of Geneva, Switzerland into kind of like the great Reformation experiment, the first um, Protestant city state. But he's also one of the first really a 
his time to write a commentary on the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that Luther had some. Right, 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 right. But Luther did nothing some writing. like John Calvin. I mean, how many volumes? Oh, Calvin was a bookworm and he was such a scholar. Yeah. And he was a writer mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, just amazing writer. Yeah. He really was. Yeah, Prolific. He was the theologian of, some people call him the Thomas Aquinas of the Reformation because he was the theologian, the author, more than the other guys. Which, which helps when we get into this because he is a brainiac, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> Almost like um, an engineer's brain. Very focused. Very yes. hyper-focused. Okay. Hyper-focused. Just have to throw those little things in every <laughs> once in a while. So that's what he's known for is uh, the Reformation in Geneva. But the first time he and his friend, William Farrell, actually went to Geneva to try to reform the city, that was in 15. 1536, they actually got run out of town after two years. They were not liked, so they were kicked out of town. And when that happened, uh, Calvin's other friend, Martin Bucer, like I told you guys, he's my favorite, he heard about this and he said, Calvin, why don't you come over here to Strasbourg? He was in the town of Strasbourg, Germany, which is on the German-French border. And he said, I have a lot of French refugees coming in. Wow. Obviously, the, the Reformation created a lot of refugees, people being persecuted, running for their lives, all of that. And so he said, why don't you come here because you're a Frenchman, you speak French, be a part of the Reformation work here in Strasbourg and just help these, you know, poor people out. So he didn't really want to do this. Again, Calvin was an introvert for sure. And, you know, very focused, very um, much a scholar, loved to just read books and do his own thing. He'd hated what he called people problems. <laughs> so he didn't really want to go do this, but he felt like God called him to. So he goes to Strasbourg and he immediately becomes the pastor of this little French congregation. And there were all these refugees, like I said, and then other citizens, other people um, started to come because they just loved his teaching. He was very eloquent, uh, very masterful in teaching the word of God. He had such a passion for, like what we were talking about earlier, the authority of scripture. You know, that was really important to him. And so a lot of anybody who spoke French was actually inclined to start coming to his church. It was like, oh, wow, check this new reformer out. So two of his congregants were Anabaptist refugees, and their names were Jean and Idolette Storder. Okay. So Idolette, that's who we're talking about here. She's a native of Gelderland, Holland, and that her maiden name was Idolette de Bure. Uh, she was from an upper middle class background, but her dad had gotten kicked off his property and banished in 1533. So Idolette was about 14, 15 years old. She was still a young teenager when that happened. So from the time she was a kid, she was no stranger to hardship, as we're going to see. That was kind of an important aspect of her life, her character, her personality. So she married Jean when she was only 16 or 17. A couple years later, they had two children, Jacques and Judith. And after that, they were converted to the Anabaptist faith. And this actually also says a lot about Idolette's character. So let me talk about the Anabaptists for a minute. (laughs) The Anabaptists came out of the Swiss Reform, uh, the Swiss branch of the Reformation under the teaching of Zwingli. That's where they came from, from Zurich. Yes, Zwingli. Zwingli and Zurich. Zwingli 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 and Zurich. But um, the Anabaptists felt like the mainstream reformers, which would be like Zwingli, Luther, later Calvin, some of these other guys. And let's just say this. They were terribly, terribly persecuted in France. Yes. And they felt like the mainstream reformers were still allowing the church to be too connected with the state. They were seeing this and they're like, wait, shouldn't we be like separate? Shouldn't we not be partnering with the government anymore? Isn't that what got the Catholic Church in trouble? (laughs) And so they were questioning this. They also didn't agree with the practice of infant baptism, which the mainstream reformers were, you know, advocating for because they felt like, well, you know, you shouldn't. the name. 
Hence the name. Exactly. They felt like, you know, you shouldn't, you, you yes. shouldn't be baptized unless you can actually profess faith in Christ. Right. So they advocated for adult baptism or maybe like if you were a teenager and you could really make a confession of faith. And that's where we get the term anabaptism. A-N-A, that prefix means again. So you're being baptized again. So the Anabaptists, you know, even though these are, you know, we could look at this and be like, okay, right on. These seem like biblical principles. But they were very disruptive of the mainstream social order, and they were too radical even for the Reformers. And the Reformers were radical guys, Mm. but the Anabaptists just went a little further than the mainstream Reformers wanted to go. And it didn't help that there were um, some fringe Anabaptists that kind of gave a bad name to the the normal ones. There were these extremists that started this thing called the Munster Rebellion. This guy took over the city of Munster. His name was John of Leiden, and he basically started a cult. He called himself King David and had 16 wives. It was just crazy. So you've got weirdos out there, and it gave the good Anabaptists a bad name. So eventually, the Catholics and the Reformers, everybody ganged up on the Anabaptists and declared them a heresy. Again, we can look at them and see like, well, actually, no, they had a good, solid understanding of Scripture. They loved the Lord, but they were just really kind of ahead of their time. You know, the Reformation era wasn't ready for separation of church and state. They weren't ready for some of these concepts or even adult baptism. So what this meant was that Jean and Idolette's conversion almost guaranteed that they were going to be persecuted. That's why I bring that up. Yes. And this is not John Calvin. This is no. This is Jean Storter, That's her right. first husband. Jean, Jean. We'll say Jean. Storter. Yes, <laughs> that'll yes. help. Just yes, please. <laughs> so uh, Jean and Idolette, they get converted to the Anabaptist faith. They get saved, basically, knowing what they're getting into here, eyes wide open. And in the region that they lived, up in the Netherlands, Belgium, in that region, it was estimated that at least thirty thousand Anabaptists were executed over a short period of time. Thirty thousand. I know it's a lot. And Menno Simons, uh, who you know eventually kind of took over the movement. That's where we get the Mennonites from, guys. Menno Simons described their martyrdom as follows. And this is kind of gross, but this is what the Anabaptists went through. Some they have hanged, some they have punished with inhuman tyranny, and afterwards garroted them with cords tied to a post. Some they have roasted and burned alive. Some, holding their own entrails in their hands, have powerfully confessed the word of God still. Some they have beheaded, given as food to the birds of the air. They've torn down their houses. They must take to their heels and flee away with their wives and little children from one city to another, hated by all men, abused, slandered mocked, defamed, and trampled upon. So again, the reason I'm sharing all this is because it speaks to the character and faith of Idolette and her husband, of course, just their boldness to take a stand like this. You know, um, during that time, too, something that came up was something called the Dragoons. And they were like the KGB or the Gestapo mm-hmm. uh, finding out. And, and they weren't just um, in France where they were kind of let loose. They were almost like bounty hunters. You know, they did this kind of on their own, but they got paid for their persecution mm. of, of believers. And they're going to come up again and again in some of the stories that we're going to have. But they weren't just soldiers of the state. More? They were yeah, more mercenaries. mercenaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're going to hear about the dragoons. Oh, but that was also, I mean, you don't just have like the state might come after you. They might mm-hmm. come in. They might break in. But you also have these dragoons. Hmm. And they'd often be hired by like a bishop or Jeez. of a certain area. Yeah. To kind of police and find uh, the pockets of Anabaptists or the pockets of Lutherans even. Right, right. Or Reformers or the Huguenots. Yeah. They were really after these different Reformed movements. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was <laughs> such a volatile time. And so obviously, like I said, this speaks to who they were as people and how brave they were. They weren't concerned for themselves. However, once they had kids, they were fearful for their children. So that's why they fled. Yes. It was in, in order to protect the kids. They weren't worried about yes. themselves. So they ended up in Strasbourg. That's how they got there. And they were so impressed with the biblical teaching of John Calvin, this new evangelical reformer in town. And they loved his teaching so much, they actually left the Anabaptists and joined his congregation. And they became really good friends of Calvin. Um, they would invite him to their home all the time. Um, but sadly, this lasted only for about two years because a wave of the plague swept through Strasbourg. And sadly, Jean Storter passed away within three days. He was just gone, the super devastating loss. And so, you know, Calvin loses a, a good friend and Idolette obviously loses her beloved husband. So she's a widow now. And it just so happened around this same time that all this is going on, probably a little bit after um, Jean Storter died, Calvin, who was in his early 30s at this point, he finally started looking for a wife, mostly because his friends forced him to. Again, this was not his thing. Like Cheryl said, he was kind of a confirmed bachelor. He was fine. He loved to just, you know, be married to books. <laughs> but William Farrell and Martin Bucer, his buddies, and even Philip Melanchthon jumped in on this. They all kind of ganged up on him and they're like, dude, you know, you're a pastor now. You're serving here. You really should get married. It'll spring stability, blah, 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 all this stuff. So he developed a shopping list, basically, of what his wife should be like. And he sent it to, uh, I guess, his you could call them his search committee, his friends. Okay, if you're going to go find me a wife, here's what I want her to be. And here's what he said. Always keep in mind what I seek to find in her, for I am none of those insane lovers who embrace also the vices of those whom they are in love with, where they are smitten at the first sight with a fine figure. This only is the beauty that allures me. If she is chaste, if not too fussy or fastidious, if economical, patient, if there is hope that she will be interested about my health. Like, oh my gosh, this guy so I want her to care about me. Yes, basically. And even just the fact he's like, I'm not one of those silly emotional people who overlooks the faults of their loved ones. It's like, oh my gosh. I care for the health. Yes. That's what he wants. Thrifty. So Don't you I love know, that thrifty. I love it. She so, has to be humble. I don't. Because she's caring for my health. Man, I know. Interesting guy, but spoken like a older single man, right? That's right. Okay, this is what he That's wanted. Right. So, and there, it explains so long single. Yes, that too. So there were a few contestants that got put forward by his friends. There was a, a wealthy German widow in Strasbourg. Um, but Calvin didn't want to live off her money. He felt kind of uncomfortable with that because she was pretty wealthy. Also, minor detail, she didn't speak French. He's like, what? this is kind of a problem yes. here. Um, then another friend said, okay, well, I have a French speaking gal here over in Switzerland. And she was the only problem with her in Calvin's mind was that she was in her mid forties. And so he wasn't really into the older woman thing. This was before the days of cougars, I guess they didn't do any of that back then. <laughs> and then there was a third candidate that totally met Calvin's checklist. So he did what any normal person would do. He set a wedding date and then arranged to meet her. No. So he hadn't even met her yet, had no, no. idea anything. But no. he's like, well, I guess we'll go ahead and get the church reserved and no. then we'll see how this goes. You know, Henry VIII so, I mean, did so that crazy. with his... Oh, yeah, Anne of Cleves. That Anne didn't of Cleves. go well. No, it didn't. But they ended uh, up being um, card partners. They would play cards together. Okay, sorry. Okay. Fun so, fact. When, so he meets and gets to know uh, this lady. And the more he got to know her, the less and less he liked her. So uh -oh. he started to freak out like, uh -oh. oh, no, how do I get out of this? The only problem was she had fallen in love with him. No. So I know, poor Calvin. So he resolved, though, he wrote to someone and he said he resolved he would never marry her, quote, even if the Lord had altogether demented me. 
Whoa. Most earnestly do I desire to be delivered out of this difficulty. So in other words, even if I was a vegetable, I wouldn't marry her. It's like, whoa, who knows what was wrong with her? Maybe she had a mustache or something. I don't know. Anyways, whatever it was, in his exasperation, he got out of the situation somehow. I think his friends had to bail him out. And he was shell-shocked. He was kind of just in the fetal position in the corner and not wanting to get married at this point. He's like, okay, I'm just going to stay single. I'm resigning myself to this. But then after a little time went by, somebody, we don't know who, suggested, hey, what about Idolette? So understandably, Calvin had never thought of her that way before because this was just, you know, these were family, he was a family friend kind of a thing. But they had been good friends over the past couple of years. She was intelligent. She was kind. They were roughly the same age. She spoke French. <laughs> and she was beautiful. So all of those things together, he just thought, man, what, what am I thinking? Of course, this works. And so within a few months, they courted and were married. William Farrell gladly performed the ceremony. Almost immediately after the wedding, they were bedridden with illness that lingered oh. for about two months. I know. I mean, talk about a rough start, but this was just kind of like a sign of things to come. Oh, my. <laughs> Once he got better, John was uh, not forced, but he really had to be at this theological council meeting uh, in another town. And so he was gone. He was out of town for a couple more months. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And so, but again, remember, Idolette was no stranger to hardship. She was okay with this. She was willing to embrace these kinds of challenges. Um, you know, Calvin was not as prolific as Luther in writing about his personal life, but we do know that they had a really happy marriage. They really valued one another. And Idolette really was a perfect companion and support for a man like this in a really challenging environment. Biographers say she was a woman of some force and individuality, qualities that would be necessary, obviously, for the life that she led as a refugee, for sure. But now, as the wife of one of the most well-known reformers, I mean, she really had to be able to hold her own. And she sometimes traveled with John, but often she had to hold down the fort, hosting guests, Protestant refugees. Actually, that was really her, um, her heart. Her passion was to help other refugees like her. She had a real soft spot for that. So Calvin actually was really sickly. Yes. They, yeah, they both were, actually. They but, had a lot. Okay, so he was really sickly, but also I was reading that he had a really surly housekeeper. Oh, yeah, that lady. I forgot about her as well. Yeah, so he was dealing with all of these other— <laughs> Plus these students coming and staying, kind of like uh, Katie Luther had to take care of these other students. Mm -hmm. A so lot of people coming through. Right. Yeah, it was a lot of foot traffic in their right. home. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, but because there were so many demands placed on John, she kind of had to deal with all of this on her own in many instances. Um, and even at one point in 1541, he was away at another conference. She had to leave Strasbourg with the kids because a plague came through the area. So she oh just had to make quick decisions like, OK, we're going to go. We're going to go stay over here with my brother. We're going to come back. So a lot of things she had to maintain on her own, not to mention the fact, again, like you said, that, you know, Calvin had health issues. She had health issues. So that same year after Calvin got back from that conference in 1541 in September, that was when he felt like God had called him back to Geneva. He went kicking and screaming. He had vowed never to return there, but it was really, really clear over time that he needed to go back to Geneva, that it was the right moment to reform this city. And so that became the home, uh, the Calvin's home for the rest of their lives. And they were actually, it's kind of sweet. They actually did have a really nice home. They were given this beautiful um, house with views of the Alps and Lake Geneva, which was a real blessing when you consider all of the challenges that they were facing and trials. 
So overseeing Geneva's spiritual development was very, very difficult, challenging. You know, there was there was still, even though they were welcomed back into the city, there was opposition, of course, on many levels. Uh, but the Calvins also had to deal with personal tragedy. Idolette gave birth in 1542 to their first son, who died when he was only two weeks old. And then three years later, they had a daughter who died at birth. And then two years after that, their third child was born premature. So, I mean, these just devastating heartbreaks and losses that they had to deal with personally personally, on top of all the other stuff, all the other spiritual warfare and other issues uh, in terms of just the Reformation in Geneva. But they, I mean, just had such amazing faith in Christ, no matter what, to be impervious to these things. Again, Idolette was no stranger to difficulty and to challenges, and her faith was really on a strong foundation. In fact, even when she was in bad health herself, especially during her pregnancies, those were dangerous pregnancies for her, Idolette was still a comfort. She was still a pillar of strength for John. And she you know, really did a lot to even rub off some of his rough edges. In fact, Calvin had a notorious bad temper and, um, you know, people would just notice steer clear. He was just could be so, I mean, volatile. But people started to notice after he got married that he was able to control his anger a lot better. So Mm. there's these ways that she really began to soften and rub off on him and encourage him to carry on in the call God gave him. One biographer said her counsel to him always was to be true to God at whatever cost and that he might not be tempted from a regard for her ease and comfort to shrink from a conscientious performance of his duty. She assured him of her readiness to share with him whatever perils might befall. I mean, really, just to say, it doesn't matter what you have to go through. I'm here. It's going to be okay. And so she had been prepared for this all her life with all that she had gone through. I mean, she was the perfect helper for this hardworking and really very burdened reformer. And she always pointed him to Jesus, not to her own personal well-being. I mean, what a woman. You know, (laughs) she just wasn't phased. But sadly, even though her spiritual strength was so noteworthy and she had just strong conviction, she did not have that same strength in her physical body. And so eventually... Uh, she became really ill. We think now probably what she had was tuberculosis based on, you know, some of the things that were recorded, some of her symptoms. And so sadly, she passed away after only nine years of marriage at the age of about 40 years old. So as she lay dying, Calvin sat at her side speaking of heaven and their happy married life together. And Jules Bonnet said the constancy of her soul never failed her, even in the midst of many sufferings and manifold weaknesses. When unable to speak, her look, her actions, the expression of her face proclaimed the faith which bore her up in her last hours. And her dying words were, O glorious resurrection, God of Abraham and all our fathers, thy people have trusted in thee from the beginning and in all ages. None has been put to shame. I also will look for thy salvation. So just an amazing woman. And Calvin was understandably grieved by her death. He pledged to live a solitary life, and he did the rest of his life, the next 15 years. He was uh, single. And he wrote, my friends, leave nothing undone to lighten in some degree the sorrow of my soul. May the Lord Jesus confirm you by his spirit and me also under this great affliction, which certainly would have crushed me had not he whose office it is to raise up the prostrate, strengthen the weak, and revive the faint extended help to me from heaven. And he gave Idolette this high praise. And this is quite a statement. Calvin was, you know, high, a man of high standards. He was very meticulous and <laughs> demanding. But this is what he said. He said, I do what I can that I may not be altogether consumed with grief. I've been bereaved of the best companion of my life. She was the faithful helper in my ministry. Whenever I face serious difficulties, she was ever ready to share with me not only banishment and poverty, but even death itself. And he even said that she had never hindered him in the slightest. 
which is just an incredible statement. So what a woman she was. I mean, a powerful testimony, a powerful helper and support to John Calvin. And that's why she's definitely worth knowing about. She's definitely a woman worth knowing. And we'll see you next week. Yes, we'll be back for more. Women Worth Knowing. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.